0: Betches Media presents... I like beer. I don't know if you, do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator, or not? Um, my party is going bat- crazy. Ah! You're, You're the pop- it- Alternative facts. Oh, goodness. The Betches SUP Podcast. America! Hello and welcome to the Betcha Up podcast. I'm Sammy Fishbein and for those of you who are just tuning in, the Betcha Up podcast is where we explain all the crazy shit that's happening in the news explained by your, I guess, just one funny friend today, me, Sammy. And today I'm being joined by an awesome guest. Her name is Teresa Younger. She is the president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women, which is the first and oldest women's foundation. Welcome, Teresa. Hello. How are you?
1: I'm great since you're here. I'm thrilled to be here. I've been a listener for a while now. And thank so this you. is this is really exciting. I, I find some comfort and joy in listening to you all. Oh, thank you. That is what we hope that our audience gets out of us. So
0: it really means a lot. So you have a very lofty position. <laughs> Really, the the first and oldest women's foundation. So, could you tell us a little bit about what the Ms. Foundation does? Some of the things that you focus on, and what do you do in your role?
1: Sure. So, the Ms. Foundation is the first and oldest uh, public women's foundation in the world. It was started by Gloria Steinem, Marlo Thomas, Letty Pogran, and Pat Carbine, and they were four women who came together in the early seventies and said, "You know, how do we move money to the communities throughout the country?" That was 45 years ago. About five years ago, I took over as the President and CEO. And the work that we do at the Ms. Foundation is really about centering women and girls of color as a point of inclusion to solving our problems. We trust women 100% to have the solutions to help and heal their communities. And our job at the Ms. Foundation quite honestly, is to move money to the grassroots and to trust that women can solve the problems within their communities. So we make grants that help support um, safety, health, and economic justice. We support leadership development within the nonprofit sector. We shape narrative around how we use the words that we use so we don't work on women's issues. We work on the issues that affect the lives of women and their communities. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then we do a a couple of other things. We bring together unlikely people who wouldn't otherwise be sitting at a table together and host convenings and conversations to help us learn and expand. And then we have a C4 that we're opening up, which will allow us to be more political uh, in the next years or so. Uh, And and that's kind of all of the pieces that we play in. Wow, that is, I mean, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you. There's some, these are some interesting and challenging times, and yet I'm like super excited because I am seeing what's happening in our grassroots and what's happening on the ground. So you, so you said uh, you focus on issues that affect women.
0: So, if this is if kind of every issue affects women, yes. since we are half of <laughs> the humans, you know. And if we weren't half of the humans, there would be no humans at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, how do you how do you pick? There must be so many things that you could potentially tackle, but how do you how do you know where best to
1: devote funds and resources? So, first off, we listen to the grassroots. Uh, To hear what they say they need and that's how we do our funding. We also look and see who is funding where and Actually the reason the Ms. Foundation for women even started was because nobody was funding women and girls intentionally and, um, and so that's how we start this conversation. And then where are the gaps? We ask ourselves, what do those gaps look like? Who needs to be funded? So in the past five years, we've been funding around safety, which is redefining safety from a black queer feminist lens, which looks at mass criminalization, incarceration of women of color, state-sponsored violence. And so we're looking at, uh, at and domestic and sexual violence. So we're looking at it from that perspective. We look at what drives an economy. And it's not just women needing childcare, but what would it look like for the providers of childcare, and how are they economic drivers within their communities? What are the changing sources that are going on out there, and how do we support women who are moving into the realm of employment? And how do we define women's work and place a value on it? Right, and then in the area around around health. We do a lot of work and support a lot of organizations who are doing work in the reproductive justice space. So not just women's health and safety, not just reproductive rights, uh, but also around reproductive justice, what sits at the intersection of what health justice looks like, what reproductive justice looks like in all of the areas. So...
0: I assume you're quite active with the recent abortion bans that have been coming out. What just because you, we are talking about reproductive justice, can you define reproductive justice, and then I guess tell us a little bit about what the Ms. Foundation is doing around this recent issue? Yeah. So or this recently, very, I don't know, it's it's picking up steam right. as of late.
1: Yeah. So about 25 years ago, a group of women of color came together with a grant that the Ms. Foundation had had provided for them, to really start looking at what were we talking about. We're not just talking about abortion access. We're not just talking about um, health in one way. We're looking at all of the lines that tie into providing comprehensive women's health and health justice. And so the the conversation around reproductive justice is taken from the lens of women of color, particularly black women, who say we can't just have a conversation around reproductive health. We have to also have a conversation around housing and employment and policies that affect our workplace and transportation. We have to broaden education. We have to broaden the conversation to be inclusive of all of those things. And in our lives, that is how we look at reproductive justice. We look at it by looking at all of these realms and understand that there's a connection between them. So reproductive justice also looks at, you know, the women's access when they are incarcerated, when they are in the military, when they have the right to not just um, have access to an abortion, but the right to parent with dignity. That's reproductive justice.
0: So there's so many, there's so many
1: discrete issues around
0: around this so how is it that you are able to manage all of these different groups like how does it like work really just in essence on the ground like who how do you find a grassroots organization that's working on education and one that's working on incarceration and one that's working on um, health care or something like that how is it that you how is it that the foundation is able to really reach all of these
1: things because it's so broad right well there's a couple things that we do one is we've been around for 45 years and then we start asking the questions we don't go in with the answers we go in with the questions who's doing this work in your community who needs help doing this work in this this community what are they doing that is that needs to be supportive. Oftentimes, organizations that are led by women, and particularly women of color, have been doing the work on a shoestring for a very, very long time. So we start asking those questions. We go in, we talk to the community members, and they'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so, Women with a Vision in New Orleans, they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Young Women United in New Mexico, they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Act for Women and Girls in California, they're doing this, right? Sister Song in Atlanta, they're doing this and so we are able to then like hear what's going on one of the key things that we do also is we allow those women to come together to share what they are doing they can go oh you're doing that i'm doing that we saw this legislation oh we saw that legislation in all honesty what we are seeing around the uh, attacks on women through the kind of abortion heartbeat bans that have been coming out have been a long time in the making And those that are on the ground doing this work consistently day in and day out are not surprised. We have been seeing bills introduced year after year after year in state legislatures for a very long time. Yes, they're picking up speed, but nobody is surprised. And what we all need to do is start playing for the long game about what this is gonna look like. And then we need to trust that those on the ground actually have the solutions. So as a national foundation, We're not coming in and saying, here's how you do it, (laughs) you know. We're coming in and saying, here's money. Can you turn the lights on? Can you pay your staff? Can Can you take a moment to take care of yourself and breathe? Can you brainstorm a problem? Got it. Just as you were saying, we
0: have to play the long game just as the Republicans do. That was really my next question. What does the long game look like for us? Because they've been fighting this for 50 years. And it's just now coming to a head when all of the pieces sort of seem to have aligned very well, but
1: what will that look like for us? You know, that's such a great question. Um, the vision of the Ms. Foundation is that we believe in a safe and just world where power and possibility are not limited by race, gender, class, sexual orientation, gender identity, ability, disability, or age. We believe that a true democracy is based on the intersection of a cornerstone between um, equity and inclusion and where every voice is valued. The reason that's important is because we have so many women have been on the ground working so hard that we haven't really been able to really think and envision what it looks like. What I will tell you that I think a long game looks like, it means investing in and trusting women and girls outside of the patriarchal and systemic structures that have been put out there and to allow us to really test out mechanisms that may or may not succeed, yeah. right? We, we assume in the philanthropic space mostly and in the business space, there's always going to be measurables, At the Ms. Foundation we support movement building. We don't believe a movement starts today and ends tomorrow. Patriarchy didn't start today and going on for a really long time, right? So we're about investing in the long haul. And I think that in the political realm, we all need to think about this in the long haul. We need to take action today. We need to make commitments today. We need to do one thing every day. And we need to understand that this is going to go on. And then we need to come up, kind of really start thinking about the conversations we need to have and the actions we want to take. So what I say all the time is, If we know politically, for those who are democratic, that we want to turn over some states and we want to hold a standard for what that looks like, we need to fully accept that leadership is going to look very different and that it's not always going to be mon... And women in those leadership roles are not going to be monolithic, right? So we need to take a step back and just kind of dream bigger and accept for that to happen. And we also need to play a little bit of politics, you know, Less than 50% of people in this country vote, even vote. So when we say, you know, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump, that's of the less than 50% of women that voted, right? So we're letting ourselves be controlled and our futures be controlled by a very small population of people. So we need to understand that we all have to vote. That's how we play the long game. We need to understand that we need to decide today that we're not going to pick the perfect candidate, but the candidate that helps us reach a more perfect union. And we need to recognize that it's going to take time. And we can move it faster than the 50 years that the Republicans played this game. Why? Because technology allows us to do it. And because more people actually believe in it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, two things you said. One is that that statistic about white women kills me every time I hear it. I'm like, (laughs) not all white women. It's It's true. It's true. (laughs) But I'm also probably not the listeners of this podcast. And something else you said that I think is really important is about philanthropy, looking at it as something that there's measurable, that you you have to get to some metric by the end of the year. And I think that that's just a fallacy, I guess, laid out by people who have the money to start Philanthropic organizations because they're business people and they're used to reaching quarterly and yearly goals, and so they're they're used to seeing a certain result after a certain amount of time, and sometimes that result is not measurable. Right. You can't you can't really necessarily measure the small changes in people's opinions and over six months or a year. But something else that you um, mentioned mm-hmm. is related to a news item that just came out this morning, and that's that Kamala Harris came out with a new policy proposal, or I guess just an idea that she wants to make very large companies essentially certify that they're paying men and women equally what is your take on that type of policy do you think it would be effective um and do you, or do you think there's something else that we should be doing to move the pay gap
1: i i think the pay gap is one small area so Whatever we can do, what does transparency look like for salaries, which is significant, right, if they guarantee, certify, whatever? What does it look like if we um, actually start um, publicizing salaries? It can't, in reality, just be the big companies, though. Because most of the workers, most of the new jobs in this country are going to be in the service sector. And those are going to predominantly be women and women of color. And so we really need to start having a broader conversation on what is the value of quote unquote women's work. What does it mean when we're going to educate a when a teacher is going to educate a student and making sure those salaries are appropriate, um, how do we want to fund effectively state government, which has more workers of, that are women and women of color in them? So what does that all look like? I think, I think we got to start somewhere. So I am never the sayer of, is that really going to be effective? Let's try it. What happens when we actually set out there the solidness of our intentions? Well, we could then look at Europe, because there are some Scandinavian countries in Europe that "quote unquote" had quotas, right? And all of the sudden, their boards, their employment, the idea of having universal health care, a uh, universal childcare, and uh, and and paid maternity and family leave—all these things helped diversify a workforce and helped ensure that there was equal pay at the end of the day. Well, it's funny you bring up quotas, because quotas are, I mean,
0: they're definitely a thing of the American past, and you'd think that all the people who want to make America great again would want to go back to the quotas. <laughs> like, we had them, we can go back if right, they want right. that again. That's fine. Um, but just speaking of Kamala, I'm a big fan of hers. Yes. And, I mean, I pretty much favor all of the female candidates, although I like people Buttigieg to too. Um But I hear I keep hearing the same thing and maybe I just live in a bubble, but I have a lot of people who are like, uh, even women who say this to me, who are like, I really love Kamala or I really love Elizabeth Warren. But do you think America, they'll ask me like, do you think America would really vote for a woman? And I I don't know what to do with that question. I'm sure you've had, you've gotten it. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to be like, yeah, I think that they can. But then I'm like, maybe I just live in a total bubble. So I and think, maybe people aren't ready. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I think what's interesting is we should be asking ourselves, is America really ready to vote for the most qualified candidate, period? I and don't know that we ever have been. Exactly. And That's so another, yeah. it's, a, it's a separate set of questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a separate set of issues. Um, but I do think that we have to call out the sexism that uh, Hillary Clinton was ha- had faced, right? She was probably the most qualified candidate ever. And... People chose not to vote for her have we moved further than we were four years ago five six years ago now Um, I hope so and I also don't think we need to settle on any one absolute candidate I think we need to start strategizing and asking our own selves questions about what do we want to hear from them not all the way to the left or all the way to the right but what does it look like to dream into the possibility of what this country could become and give room for them not to be perfect on everything, but really good on a lot of things. You know, we come in as a, as a critical, uh, doing a, having a critical analysis on what it looks like for the politicians. Politicians are not going to be perfect. In fact, if they have been um, in politics for any amount of time, we should have seen their growth. We should see that they made a decision 20 years ago that's not the decision they would make today. And we need to ask them about that. So. I would like to say we are ready for a woman president. I would like to say we are ready for the most qualified candidate to be the president of this country to lead us in the world. I think we need to take a moment to just recognize what that looks like for ourselves, and then to start speaking truth. I mean, that really is so important. Why aren't we? What makes us uncomfortable about it? Um, and, And, you know, that's why we're in the situation that we're in. We actually played too many courtesy games, if you ask me, of, well, we don't want to offend. Right. Right? Um, We don't want to offend. So we're not going to No, it's time to, you know, challenge people to have a question, not critique them, not take them apart, not dismiss them, but to engage in a critical conversation that is going to help us understand and help them understand. So I'm not talking about screaming at people, um, but I am talking about couch conversations and calling a question and listening to the answer, not projecting what we think the answer will be from them because there's we can write we can find commonalities with almost any person in this country. I find it, I travel 70,000 miles across the country annually Mm -hmm. and I'm talking in lots of different places. Idaho and Virginia and Alabama and Mississippi and Utah, right? I'm talking to a lot of different people and actually we can find a lot of commonalities. Mm -hmm. Do we want to get to a safe and just world? Yeah, I mean, I think people just have a different idea. Right, but then engage in what that looks like, right? And why my safe and just as a black woman in this country is different than your safe and just, a white man's safe and just, right? But you can't live, you don't know until you're really able to be in that conversation. And we assume everybody's in tune the way we're in tune. And we know that's not true. Yeah, I mean, since hearing this question from
0: so many women who are, they they identify themselves as liberal And they're, yet they're still asking this question About are we ready And I've s- tried to put myself In the shoes of someone Asking that question Or even like just a white guy Who's 50 years old and is like What the fuck is happening mm-hmm. And it's like I can Almost see what they see How they're sort of used to this Like old world that I mean maybe we had it even like When I was growing up like you know, the whole like Disney princesses kind mm-hmm. of world. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see why they come from where they come from. Right. And why it's so threatening to them to see really liberated women. And it's just like you're competing with however many hundreds and thousands of years of history that it's been this way. And that gets passed down in the DNA, that understanding that this is like the hierarchy. Right. And, but... So, along with think- giving this a lot of thought, I've been reading Good and Mad by Rebecca Traester. Mm-hmm. And she basically says that there is that women being angry about their situation is kind of like a key ingredient in us progressing. And that when we're complacent, we don't really accomplish anything or we'll sort of backtrack. Do you think that what's been happening now? pretty much ever since Trump was elected with the Me Too movement, and now you have this backlash on abortion. Do you think that that
1: will serve women well, and that it will mobilize them? So I think this is a, I look at this moment in time as a true opportunity. And I know right. it's really hard, because. but but if, if change were easy, <laughs> um, Everybody would do it. It wouldn't take us, you know, time to get ourselves into a mechanism around change. I use the example, much like Rebecca does, but I use the example of if you live high on the hill um, and a flood comes through the valley, those people in the valley move up on the hill, but those people on the hill never have to worry about what's happening with the floodwaters, right? And that's very, very real. And so like people. Literally real. Literally real. We're going to have real. climate yeah. have cli- We have climate <laughs> change. We flooded. just saw what happened in Oklahoma yeah. and through the mid states, right? But those people actually have a greater understanding of what change looks like, accepting what that change looks like. And what we need to do is not just say, well, in the South where there's flooding and in the Midwest where there's tornadoes, you know, they shouldn't have built their houses or they... Actually, let's have an understanding about what does change look like? What does that mean for us? And so I think that, you know, my generation of, of women we grew up after roe v wade after title not there was no urgency i got to play sports i got to play sports in college i got to you know i got to have access to birth control like there were so many things I, i got to have my own my own credit card i got to have my own bank account right there's so many things that i think we just took advantage of yeah and and right now this kind of chaos that we are in actually means that we can be really innovative as women and people who are concerned and test a whole bunch of new markets and that we can use this as a way to one, look back on our past and understand what we need to do. I oftentimes talk about um, standing in the shade of trees that we did not plant and walking down paths that we did not pave and drinking from wells that we did not drill.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. So all that's of us. the all of us, right?
1: Yeah. But now this moment in time is calling on us to water those plants, to maintain those wells, uh, to to pay, maintain those paths, and to drill more wells. We actually have to do the work of those that came before us. And before we were complacent and like looking at the tree and going, "Hmm, I wonder why those leaves are falling off the tree," instead of recognizing that we actually needed to plant it, we actually needed to water the tree, right? Yeah. Um, You know, wow, here's a path that seems really nice. Why is it breaking up? Nobody maintained the path, right? So we actually need this moment in time so that we can build out what needs to happen because healthy trees drop healthy nuts to the ground that embed themselves in the ground, build the roots really, really deep, and then grow new trees. And that's exactly what we need to be doing.
0: That's a great analogy that really... I think, perfectly encapsulates sort of how we all look at the world from the tiny little piece of history that we're in. Yeah. And yet we don't even... We don't even... I was thinking about this while watching Game of Thrones, actually. (laughs) (laughs) How, like, their whole world is now destroyed and they're going to have to rebuild that. And, like, I I was thinking, like, what if the the whole world here got destroyed? Like, do people know how to, like, lay bricks? Like, how are you going to rebuild all that? You just sort of assume someone's going to do it for you. But... So you said... And I, I think about that a lot in terms of like how I grew up. And to me, it was like, of course I could be president if I wanted. Like mm-hmm. there's reasons why I, I personally could not be president. But <laughs> but when I was younger, I that, that was absolutely within the realm of my very doable possibility mm-hmm. if that's what I wanted. Exactly. Um, so something you mentioned earlier was that the Ms. Foundation is going to become more political, that you're becoming a C4. So what will have, we'll have a C4 you, arm. Will have, you will have a C4 arm. Yeah. So what are some of the... Top priorities For that arm Of the Miss Foundation So
1: You asked early on in this interview, how do we decide where we're giving the money away? That's how we're deciding how we're going to play on the C4. We actually are doing a landscape analysis right now of what's happening with women of color, what's happening in the racial justice space, and what's happening in the reproductive justice space so that we can figure out where the gaps are. Do we need to fund women of color who are running for elected office or support the organizations that are doing that? Do we need to ensure that there are training opportunities? The Ms. Foundation, in its 45 years, has had over 1,600 grantee partners. 1,600. Where are those those women and men who led those organizations? Those who understand the issues, understand policy, and are able to do the work? Maybe we should be identifying them and tapping them, and they're connected to their communities to be able to have an impact. We support state-level work grassroots work. And so that's really what we're spending some time doing is asking the questions about what do what do the grassroots need? You know, I know, in past podcasts, you've talked about, you know, why we need to pay attention as as communities and as people with what's happening in state level legislatures, because they make it to the Supreme Court. Well, what's happening in state-level le- legislatures, because I have worked in one for eight years, actually was a trend of being able to watch policies move through states on a variety of different issues. Mm-hmm. Everything from hospital mergers, Catholic hospitals taking over public hospitals, and what does that look like for a community's access to health care? Right. Not just abortion services, but birth control, yeah. right? So w- you know, all of those pieces get played in. So for us, it's about looking at what's going on on the grassroots, figuring out what they need and then figuring out how we can support without duplicating, right? Right. We don't need to duplicate what's already going out there. Groups like Higher Heights and Groundswell, there are a lot of groups out there doing some really amazing stuff, but how do we support what Ms can support? What are the gaps that need to take place so that we can make the changes happen? And it's like, every change. So it's not just who's running for state office, who's running for statewide office, but who's running for city council, who's running for school board. I mean, in reality, that is what the Republicans did. Yeah, They paid attention to dog catcher. Why? Because dog catcher actually meant that you had some credibility to get people to vote for you. That's what we need to do. We need to pay attention to dog catcher, and we need to pay attention to health commissioner, and we need to pay attention to... Uh, City Council and to mayors and to first selectmen and to um, you know the, the, the broader and broader circles that go out in that space. What's happening in county government? What's happening in state government? How are, who is leading in state government? Who are the governors that are leading in state government? Not because we believe in them 100%, but because we can influence them. And what people don't know and what I learned from working in state government is literally five phone calls will make a local legislator think that the house is burning down. Right. So we just have to, we have to be in contact with them. Right. Even if you didn't vote for them, you need to hold them accountable. Right, And then you need to give them room to run again and vote for them or vote against them. So growing up, my mom always
0: like said this to me. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, can you explain why though? Can you explain why that matters? So how, and, and that's uh, I think the gap that a lot of people have and it's that and I think the five phone calls thing is like that yeah you just need to get people to think that it's really about volume it's just about more voices being in in the game and you think oh I only have one vote it comes around once every four years maybe two if you're like super engaged but it's it's really like the everyday person and getting why is it that Republicans can see the significant of those roles and those small actions but it's kind of out of the liberal head to see that
1: yeah you, I don't know that I have that answer because that would mean I'd have to have spoken with a whole bunch of people and done an analysis <laughs> but and I wouldn't say that I, I have I have done that enough but what I would say is we forget that government is the people right government is the people you're paying them we're paying them but they are also us we you know when you when you vote every almost every community in this country will vote for their local tax structure every community every dollar that you earn some portion of it is going to pave the roads in your town to ensure the education system to make sure the water is good right and so everybody can see where this impacts and you know there's been a there's been an adjustment right we haven't had enough people uh, really paying attention to what that looks like, and understanding that government is them, and they get to make the decisions in it. Okay. It's not just what happens every two years and what happens every four years. There are local elections that take place for everything, and you don't have to know all of the answers. That's the other side of it. People think they go into a voting booth and they go, "I don't know any, I don't know all of the answers around this, so I don't know that I should vote on it." And you actually should vote on you sh- actually should vote on it. How do we
0: so I mean I was just as you're describing this and how there, we vote on literally everything I can't help but think that it's somewhat of a privilege to have the time and the access to understand All of these details and these intricacies and how they'll ultimately affect you What about someone who is, you know single mom working two and a half jobs? And where, where did where does that person get the
1: agency to really be a part of this? That person is the person in every single community out throughout this country that needs to be the one who gets gets their voice heard the most, right? Right, and right. they so need it the most. They need it the most. They need to have a common shared values about what they what what's important to them. And one of the things that I you know say is you you don't have to know all of the answers, but maybe we need to de- we need to figure out that we want people to truly participate in government, Mm -hmm. in the structures that are out there. Should Mm -hmm. we have a day off so that everybody gets a day off? Or we extend our voting uh, options so that you have a larger amount of time to vote? Do we do what they've done in Colorado and mail the ballots to your house and then just make sure you get it back? Let's figure out how to encourage everybody to participate we need to have a shared set of values that actually looks at what it would look like if everybody's voice got heard and then we don't then we can say to the mother who's working two jobs you know read this one pager here's some information you know what are the questions what are the things most important to you have you talked to this person let us help you out Mm
0: -hmm. so that i mean of course, we want that, but only one side is really interested in that. Only happening. one side, yeah. Only yeah. One. no, it's, yeah. it's it's true. They're interested in the total opposite. Like you have to be making above seventy five thousand dollars a year, and you need to be you know so white
1: to I, you vote. Know, you know, but but in reality, there are poor people in Appalachia. There are poor farmers in the middle of the country or in upstate New York who are voting the same way as these parameters. We need to not vote in the best interest of ourselves, but in the best interest of our communities, which is what black women have continued to do in this country and will continue to do. It's what women of color have continued to do in this country and will continue to do, and it's what women on our side have (laughs) continued to do. But it's because we don't feel that we should vote in our own best interest, let's vote in the best interest of our community and our future. Right. as opposed to where our spouses or our significant others or what that man on TV is telling us. Right. Um, so I just want to talk about one thing really quickly,
0: because when we originally booked this interview, you were coming in to talk about Pride Month. Oh, yes. And to begin- <laughs> right, I know. But I feel like so much has happened that is just broadly female-related in the past few weeks, mm-hmm. so we really had to talk about that. But in light of Pride Month, do you think there is a real chance that we could go backwards on gay marriage? And if the answer is no to that, what do you think is the next frontier of LGBTQ rights?
1: So the Equality Bill passed the House for the first time. Yay! uh, (laughs) But it won't even go for a vote in the Senate. It won't go for a vote in the Senate. But I do think that we, you know, I worked on the Marriage Equality Bill in the state of Connecticut for years. Uh, And one of the things I remember was this idea that nobody knew a gay person. And so if they had met a gay person, then they might be able to, you know, believe that they could love whoever they wanted to love. Really abstract. They had all met gay people. (laughs) They had all met gay people. (laughs) Every one of them in every church and synagogue and mosque and whatever. Right. Um, So one of the realities about this is that, again, if we do not water the trees, then they will die. And I think we all, uh, many people thought, you know, once we have marriage equality, we have everything else, everything will get covered. And there aren't, you know, the Constitution, the, the law, many laws on the books were not written for women, women of color, LGBTQ people. And so we are left out. And to assume that the courts and that individuals are going to understand that um, is wrong. We're going to have to go back through legislation and through the courts to make sure that we can ensure the rights are, are covered. And so I don't know that we will go back. I hope we don't go back. That's one more fight that we've, like, I, I just I you thought know, we finished get exhausted that <laughs> on. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I know that marriage equality wasn't going to get us all that needs to be covered in the. Equality bill, right? There are things around, and people's lack of understanding around uh, religious exemption, right? That's the government's ability to step in to tell you what you can do, not individuals, right? So, you know, you can't you can't claim a religious exemption because you know a gay person wants to get a wedding cake. Or a woman wants to get a birth control pill, and you decide that that doesn't happen. Like that's just we can't have that, right? Well, so just just
0: quickly, because there are people who are listening to this who will then go translate this for other people. Yeah. What is the arg- What is the argument there that the government, like, just the specifics? So of it. this
1: we should understand what our Constitution says, right? And the right. Constitution starts out with Congress shall make no laws that, right? right? And so when we think of that, we you know this happened. Um, uh, in on so many levels over time, where we saw that we carved out for those who didn't believe religiously um, the equity of what needed to happen, we carved them out of the bills. We have to actually stop doing that, right? Because Congress shall make no laws, you know, is one thing. But you as an individual um, don't get to deny the rights of others because— Congress is saying to you, you have to respect the rights of others, and and so it, it's a little bit, con, you know, in the context of it all, it's a little bit, you know, um, people think that government making laws is telling them what to do. No, government making laws in these cases is around protecting the rights of individuals, ensuring that they can they cannot or will not be discriminated against. Um, if you have a religious take on it, that You know doesn't agree with the law you get to have that religious take you just don't get to provide the services to everybody right got it okay earlier you mentioned just
0: on this just helping people understand how they what it means to be involved when you said you worked on the marriage equality act how what did that involve like what was what were your actual tasks and like what does it mean to work on some legislation
1: so in in that case um i was working for the aclu of connecticut and we were in in that case, it was one going door to door and and getting people to sign petitions. It was hosting parties in my house so that people could meet other gay people it was it was um working with those who were brave enough to lend their name to the legislation that needed to pass um, and prepping people to get ready to testify, um, watching their kids so that they could testify at the Capitol. There's so many things that people can do. Um, And then it was about voting. It was about contacting my legislator. It was about talking to other legislators in the community. It was about talking to my friends to make sure that they understand Understood Why it was important to me So I think you know We oftentimes think that There's nothing we can do There is something that Everybody can do If you are good with kids Babysit somebody's kids So that they can go testify If you're a good writer And can put things together Take somebody's story Let them tell it to you And help them write it Listen to them as they share What that looks like If you have a relationship With a legislator Contact them If you don't have a relationship With a legislator Contact them (laughs) You know There's So when I I was working on marriage equality. It was about um, there were there were individuals who were lending their name to the le- the uh, lawsuit that we were getting ready to file, and so the role that the ACLU played was in con- in conjunction with other organizations like GLAD to put together legislation and context for the argument to take it to the Connecticut Supreme Court. Got it. Okay, so one last question before we have to end.
0: Um, What can our audience do to support the Ms. Foundation, whether it's, so I mean you do so many things. So what are the various ways they can support? If they're donating money, where would that money go? That sort of thing. So
1: the Ms. Foundation is a public charity. So we are, we get some large contributions, but it is about building women's collective power. So if you have $5 a month, you can make that donation to the Ms. Foundation, and it will get doubled and quadrupled and have an impact across the country, because those are the organizations that we fund. So that's one thing you can do. Figure out what that looks like for you, because that's really important. The other things that you can do, find out in your local community who is doing what. Right. So that you can figure that out. I think have a conversation with yourself about what is most important to you, knowing yourself, knowing what your values are and knowing um, what things really touch your heart. And then commit doesn't have to be 70 hours a month. Commit two, five, 10 hours a month to an area, an organization that is important to you. Um, Talk to people. Actually then listen to people about what stories they are telling, what issues are important to them. Expand yourself, not just those who think like you, but those who don't think like you. And in some ways, take trips to places you thought you would never go. Get some miles, guys. Get some miles. Go visit the South. Go visit the country. Go visit the middle of the country. Understand that every person in this country most of them that I talk to have a passion for this country, have a passion for uh, shared values. We just haven't talked about what that looks like, right? Mm -hmm. Don't we want an educated community? Shouldn't we have free, affordable, uh, comprehensive education that's supported on every level? What does that look like, right? We, We know both Republicans and Democrats will agree that school loans are too much and we should figure out how to get rid of them. And yet, When we start having those conversations, we find ways to separate ourselves. So I always say, go to places you never thought you would go to and just listen. Don't walk in thinking you have the answers because we need to understand that there are answers out there that we can't even dream of because we don't understand what everybody is dealing with. Got it. So
0: where can our audience find you? Find the Ms. Foundation? Yeah. yeah.
1: So you can find us on all all avenues of social. Um, but you can go to uh, our website is forwomen.org. We are working on gender equity. And so we really want both men, women, gender non-conforming, and anybody who defines themselves in between to go to our website, take a look what's up there. You can also follow us on Twitter, Insta, and Facebook, and all of those are Ms. Foundation. You guys know what that is. And Ms. is, just let me just make sure, Ms. is M-S, Ms. It's the, you know, it's the neutral alternative To um, uh, how women could and should and have been able to define themselves when they are married, whether they are married or not. And so we always had Mr. out there, right? Mr. meant you could be married or not married, but we didn't have those alternatives until 45 years ago. Right. Well, that's because women get their value
0: depending on whether they're married or single. Let's be honest. Uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Teresa. This has been really, really enlightening. So until the end of democracy, I'm Sammy Fishbein and this has been the Betches Up podcast.
1: Betches.